You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So when I was uh, doing that reflection, I didn't have my keys with me, but I was thinking about my uh, bike lock keys and how... When I'm on my bike, when I'm doing physical activity, engaging in sports, it's when I feel alive. Um, and so all of that is a lead-in to a little cheeky notice about football. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a bunch of us are getting together tomorrow evening up on Lansdowne at 7 o'clock to play football. So uh, if you want to join us, you're very welcome. Um, I will be playing, so clearly you don't need to be young and fit. Uh, you just need to be enthusiastic. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you want to, to be involved, um, let me know. Come and talk to me afterwards, and uh, I'll give you all the details for that. So, yes, so we're thinking about this, uh, this topic of uh, already good, and uh, I've been asked to think about this. Already bad is my uh, topic for today. Um, so we're going to be asking the, the question, uh, the kind of the opposite question in a sense, and exploring that a little bit this morning. Uh, so to begin with, I um, just want to recommend a couple of books to you. Uh, so the first of those is a book called Humankind uh, by Rutger Bregman. You may have seen this um, in the bookshops. Um, you may have seen it in charity shops as well. I picked one up the other day. Um, it's well worth reading. I would um, highly recommend it, and I'll say a little bit more about it as we, um, as we go along. Um, and then the book Original Blessing uh, by Danielle Schroyer. Uh, you're unlikely to see this in a charity shop. It's a little bit more uh, kind of obscure, but it's, again, well worth reading. So those are two books that I would certainly recommend. And Original Blessing is, is a bit of a sort of textbook, I think, for the coming few weeks as well. So both of those are worth a look at. So another book, uh, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. So probably one of the most widely read novels of the 20th century, I imagine. Um, you may have read it at school because uh, it appears quite often on English literature syllabuses uh, in school. Um, and uh, it's been a very influential book. Um, if you don't know the story, um, it tells the story of a group of boys who are shipwrecked on a desert island. Uh, and at first, life is fairly idyllic. But before long, there's a, a descent into tribalism and violence, which culminates in the death of one of the boys called Piggy. Um, in the end, the boys are rescued, and uh, the main protagonist, Ralph, uh, reflects on all that's happened. And the, whoops, the closing uh, words of the book are these. Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. So the novel, I think, has a lot to say, uh, a lot to say about the fear of an unknown enemy, the way in which we can kind of create monsters out of nothing just because uh, of a fear of the unknown, of what's out there waiting to get us. So there's a lot in there, I think, which, which uh, has uh, something to say to us. But, but what about this last line? What about these, these closing words of the book? Was Golding right? Is there a darkness in man's heart? Is there something fundamentally wrong with us which will always tend towards evil? And lots of people have, have taken this and, and said, oh, yeah, that, he's absolutely right. It's been a very influential book, not just as much as for anything for, for those last words, that, that phrase itself, the darkness of man's heart. But was he right? Well, 
for most of its uh, history, the Western church has promoted exactly that view, uh, using different language perhaps, but has, has promoted the view that fundamentally human beings are flawed. And not just because of the things we do or because of the things that are done to us, but simply by virtue of being human. The church has historically said, yes, there is a darkness in the heart of every human being and it's something we're born with. Uh, And the technical term for this belief is original sin. And you may have heard that phrase before, original sin. It's a way of uh, of talking about this. Uh, And it's usually formulated something like this. So when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, uh, a kind of infection was introduced into the human race, which passed down to everyone with no exceptions. Well, apart from Jesus, but then that's a different story. But this sin nature uh, is something that we all inherit, which means that we're unable to do good on our own and that we'll always be drawn to evil. Uh, And some theological traditions uh, use the language of total depravity, not to kind of say that we are completely horrible, but just as a way of expressing the idea that every part of us is affected by this. Um, so that's the idea of original sin, that, that uh, there's this kind of there's something in us uh, which always draws us away from the good and towards the evil. Uh, and then this belief in original sin, this, this belief in a kind of a sin nature, is often extended... And this is important, I think, to kind of recognise the difference here, but it's often extended to include the idea of what we might call original guilt. So not only are the odds stacked against us if we wish to do good and to live good lives, but we're born sinners under the condemnation of God. So we might call that original guilt. Uh, And then if you align that belief with the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment, you end up in a pretty bleak place. You end up in a place where newborn babies are destined for that fate unless something is done to change the situation. And that's why infant baptism becomes really important because that's the something that needs to be done to rectify the situation, to deal with this problem. That's why when you, if you attend a a service of infant baptism, you might notice there's an awful lot in the liturgy about sin and about renouncing evil and the devil and so on, because this is where it comes from. This is what it's about. This is why uh, it became really important in the the life of the church. So that's the notion of original sin. Uh, Not always perhaps expressed quite that starkly. A lot of people who would kind of say, yeah, I believe that, wouldn't want to push it to those kind of extremes, but that's where the logic takes us. So what do you think? Any in favour? Well, I suspect we're probably all shuddering a little bit at these kind of extreme ideas. Uh, We may wonder how anyone could ever believe any of this stuff. But it may also be that there's some residual trace of this belief in original sin in many of us because it's been so much part of uh, our understanding of of the gospel, of, of what it means to be a Christian, of what what Christianity is all about. Um, So this idea of this kind of darkness in the human heart is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. And it's also there in our culture and in our economic systems. So capitalism is founded on the belief that people are fundamentally greedy. 
That's, that's kind of how it operates. And for a number of years now in this country, we've had a, a right-wing government in power. Uh, and those on the right wing, sort of philosophically, would tend to agree with this notion that, that there is something wrong with humanity and that we, that needs to be dealt with in, in various ways. Whereas those on the left would have a more optimistic view of human nature. So it's kind of very much embedded, I think, in our culture, in our history, and not least within our Christian traditions as well. And of course, human history offers lots of evidence to support the idea, doesn't it? It's not like we've all been saints, uh, you know, all the way through, is it? There's, there's plenty there. If you want to kind of look for evidence to support the idea that there's something wrong with us morally, it's not difficult to find evidence which seems to point us in that direction. Or if we're really honest, we just need to look at our own experience, don't we? And look at ourselves and look at the way that people around us behave. So I don't think it's easy just to kind of jettison it. It's not easy, I don't think, to say this is just kind of extreme nonsense. There's something there that we need, to, I think, to grapple with and to think about. Even if we're in a place where we think, I, I, I can't believe this, but we might also be feeling like, but can I not believe it? Is it okay to, to say, no, I'm, I no longer believe that? Will everything come falling down? Is this one of these kind of pillars of faith which if we take it away will lead to the whole edifice collapsing. Do we need this belief in order to kind of believe everything else that we want to hold on to? So let's just look for a moment at where it is that this, this idea comes from. So um, original sin uh, was first, the, the kind of doctrine was first sort of fully articulated um, by a guy called Augustine. There's his uh, Facebook profile picture. Um, and uh, he, he was kind of around towards the end of the 4th century. So he lived, uh, as you can see, quite a long time. And it was towards the end of the 4th century uh, that he was really talking about, uh, about this stuff. So Augustine, if you've not heard of him before, he's probably one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the church. Um, and so and not an insignificant figure. Um, and uh, Augustine was responding um, when he sort of put forward the idea of original sin and articulated, set it out. Uh, he was responding to the teaching of a guy called Pelagius. Now, Pelagius was a monk, um, and Pelagius was shocked by the, the, the moral laxness in the church. When he looked at the church and, and the leadership of the church, he saw immorality and corruption, and he was shocked by that, quite rightly. Uh, and he, he argued for change. He said things need to change. And he believed that human beings can change, that we can do better. That was his, his argument. And so that was what he was wanting to say. Um, and so over a period of uh, many years, Augustine was at the forefront of a battle to, to, um, to counteract that, these ideas and to tackle this, this kind of teaching. So Pelagius was saying, uh, we can do better than this. We can live good lives. We don't have to accept this. And Augustine, in response to that, was formulating this, this idea of original sin. And I think there are two things that are worth noting at this point. Uh, the first thing is that ideas and beliefs are often formed in opposition to something else. They don't kind of just appear in a vacuum. Often we formulate ideas because we want to say, well, we don't believe that, so we need to figure out what we do believe. Um, and that's, that's the way that it, it works, and, and that's true in, in 
any area of philosophy, really. And Christian theology is no different. It doesn't just come down from heaven to us uh, sort of pure and untarnished. There's a context to it. Um, And the doctrine of original sin was formulated by Augustine as a way of addressing views that he thought were inadequate, that the church uh, rejected at the time. So that's always there. The the creeds, when you read the historic creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and so on, they often tell us much more about what we don't believe than what we do believe. Because again, they're formulated in this context of conflict, of trying to oppose views that were held at the time that were regarded as heretical. So that's one thing. The second thing is that uh, there's a kind of um, a social political context to this as well. So um, there's always a context which helps to shape the content. And Pelagius was challenging the church to reform. Uh, and the church, like any, un- any institution, is resistant to change. You may have noticed that over the years. But churches are no different. And when people in power feel threatened they will tend not to say, oh yeah, hands up, mea culpa, you're right, we need to change. So there's resistance, there's a conflict which begins to develop. And as conflicts develop, they tend to become more polarised. Views become more hardened on one side as the battle kind of continues. Um, And so that's part of the context as well. The church is wanting to uh, keep Pelagius quiet for vested interests, basically because they, people weren't happy to change. And so uh, Augustine is one of those that kind of leads the, leads the way in that. Uh, it's also worth being aware that Augustine personally was someone who kind of struggled really with his own desires, his own kind of sense of who he was. He spent a number of years trying to find some way of, of living which sort of made sense to him. And so when he discovered Christianity in, the, in, the kind of, uh, in a more biblical sense... Um, he really kind of launched himself into it. So a bit like when we read the Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament, we need to kind of understand that Augustine is someone who's come from a place of feeling quite, uh, quite down on himself, really, and feeling like he was really struggling to discovering this thing which suddenly seemed to work. So he's got the zeal of a new, in, a new convert, which is often great, but also kind of leads to maybe sometimes uh, excessive uh, views on things. So that's all part of the context. So it, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't explain everything, but it's all there. We need to kind of recognise that that's the context for this, uh, this sort of formulation of this idea of original sin. So it goes back to Augustine in the fourth century, and it's become something that church has kind of, in the West in particular, the Eastern Orthodox Church approaches things differently, but in the West, the church that we're kind of part of, the traditions that we're part of, it's become something which has been seen as fundamental. It's a starting point for many a presentation of the gospel, this idea of original sin. So does it have any biblical basis? I think that's always a good question to ask. We can see where historically it came from. It's interesting that it was in the fourth century rather than the first century that this idea was first formulated. So where, where do we find this in the Bible? Do we find this in the Bible? Well, a key passage which Augustine used uh, to justify this belief is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 17. Uh, And especially verse 12, which says this. So this is the NIV translation. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So Augustine wasn't helped by the fact that the Latin text that he was using slightly mistranslated the last phrase. 
So where the NIV says, because all sinned, in the Latin text that Augustine would have used, it says, in whom all sinned. And that's a very significant difference. So that's part of kind of where uh, Augustine was coming from when he, when he looked at this passage. Now, Romans 5, 12 to 17 is not an easy passage to get to grips with, okay? It's one of the bits of Romans that's more complicated. Uh, it can be hard to follow the argument, and it seems to kind of double back on itself. And uh, So it's not an easy passage to get to grips with. But I think there are two key things that come out of it. Firstly... Paul is making the same point that he makes elsewhere in Romans, which is that we're all in the same boat. That's a key thing for Paul in the letter to the Romans. So he wrote Romans partly to introduce himself to this church in Rome because they didn't know him, and partly to address some issues of division in the church. So there was division in the church in Rome between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so time and again in the letter... Paul wants to emphasise that there's no difference between them, that neither group is superior to the other, that they need to get along with each other because they're no different. They've come from different places, but fundamentally there's no difference between them. So when Paul, for example, in, at the end of chapter 3, famously says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the emphasis not, is there is not on the sin, but on the all. It's the all have sinned. That's the key, key word all the way through the letter to the Romans, all, all of us, we're all in the same boat. And so Paul is here wanting to talk about the, our common experience as human beings. And that leads on to the second point, which is that the focus here is not on sin, but on death. That's our shared experience. Uh, so sin is related to that, but, but the, the, what it says there in, in verse 12, in this way, death came to all men. We all experience Death, we're all aware of our mortality. And what Christ has achieved for us is freedom from that. He's brought us life. So the point of the, the passage is not that this sin nature that is in us has somehow been passed on and had to be dealt with. The point is that we've all, we all experience death, which comes, as the biblical story says, through sin. But Jesus brings us life. So the focus is not on sin, but on light, uh, sin and death. Oh, sorry, sin and um, forgiveness in that sense, but on death and life. That's the focus of the passage. And so it seems to me that if we want to take this passage seriously, we're not required to maintain a belief in original sin. That's not what Paul is talking about. And if we go back to where it all began in the book of Genesis, there's nothing there to suggest that Adam's disobedience has fundamentally changed human nature. If you read Genesis 2 to 3 and then into chapter 4 and onwards, there's nothing there to suggest that something, somehow human beings have now inherited from Adam some kind of sinful nature that always pushes us towards sin and disobedience. So chapters 2 and 3... Uh, contain some parables, some stories which are intended to explain why the world is as it is. Why do human beings have to toil to make a living? Why do women experience pain in childbirth? Why do we live with guilt and shame? Why is life so hard sometimes? And most important of all, why do we die? Those are the questions that Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are trying to provide some answers for. Now we might have questions about those answers that are given, as we read those stories, but the one thing the stories don't attempt to do is to explain why it is that human beings sin, why we do evil. The stories don't try and give us any explanation for that. 
That's not what they're trying to address. And if we look at the next story in Genesis, which is the story of Cain and Abel, we see that God says to Cain in uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So that sounds to me more like Pelagius than Augustine. That's not saying that there's something in you, Cain, that will always make you do wrong. It's saying the opposite, isn't it? It's saying you have a choice to make. Yes, there's always this possibility, just as for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned in their innocence. They disobeyed God, not because there was something wrong with them, but in their innocence they disobeyed. And when we look at the story of Cain and Abel, Cain uh, is judged not because there's something in him which is now wrong, but because he has made a bad choice. So he has a choice to make. Sin is not inevitable. And so it seems to me that if we want to take the Bible seriously, then we're not compelled to hang on to this notion of original sin. The Bible doesn't say anything about original sin. Some of the passages that maybe seem to say that, I think, don't say that. And certainly when we, as I say, go back to the very beginning, there's nothing there to suggest that something has changed in our very human nature because of Adam and Eve. In fact, it points us in the opposite direction. Consistently, it points us towards our own responsibility for our actions and the need for us to choose the good because there is always this thing which is not within us but external to us that will draw us away. The serpent is part of God's creation. It's a very strange story, isn't it? It's very weird. But the serpent is not kind of within Adam and Eve. It's, it's external to them. So the Bible, I think, when we read it carefully and clearly, doesn't point us in that direction. And in fact, it takes us in a different direction, I think. So it seems to me that the notion that we're born into the world guilty and under condemnation is abhorrent. Uh, the notion that there's something that we inherit a predisposition to sin is also not justified and it's not helpful. And so over this coming series, I think we're going to be exploring the notion of original blessing rather than original sin. But is there any place for this idea of original sin? If we dispense with it, how do we explain the multitude and scale of human depravity? How do we explain the fact that that life is as it is and that people behave as they do. Because as I say, there does seem to be plenty of evidence to support the idea that deep down beneath the veneer, there is something in us that draws us that way, that there is a darkness in the human heart. And that's where this book, Humankind, I think is really useful. It's really helpful and worth a read because it explores some of those, some alternative explanations and the thing that I think is really striking about it is that it does so not based on kind of theological ideas or philosophical ideas, but on research. It's looking at some of the stories, some of the uh, experiments that have been done. Social scientists have looked into some of this stuff. Why, why do humans behave in the way that we do? Uh, and it's really helpful in terms of just unpacking some of that, looking at some of the evidence that supposedly supports the idea that there's something in us that's, that draws us to, to what is wrong. But it also uh, puts forward some alternative ideas as well. It's well worth having a look at. And I think when you, when you read that book, I think it will encourage you to think that it is possible to believe that human beings are fundamentally good while still engaging with the reality of human existence in all its grime and its glory. 
We can face life as it is without having to believe that there's something fundamentally wrong in, in us. But we have to recognise too that we're not, born into, we're not born into the Garden of Eden, are we? We're born into the world outside of the gates of Eden. We're born into a world where life is hard. Where we're born into environments where, uh, where those who nurture us are flawed. Uh, we're born into environments where we won't always be drawn towards the good. And so there is something there that I think we need to hold on to. The language of original sin isn't helpful, but we need something that just reflects the fact that, that from the beginning there is a struggle, there is a battle in a sense to do good, to do what is right, to be the people that we're meant to be. So I think we need to, to kind of hold on to that as well in some way. So finally, does it matter? Um, it's always a good question. Julia's favourite question, so what? Um, does it matter? Yes, I think it does matter, and not just because we need to get our theology straight so we can tick all the boxes. But the way that we see one another and the way that we see ourselves uh, has a profound impact. Uh, and again, um, Bregman in his book looks at the way in which uh, some of the research which suggests that our expectations of ourselves and of other people shape behaviour. So if we, uh, if we tell children that they're, they're clever and they're intelligent, they will, they will aspire to that, they will play up to that if you like. And if we say the opposite to children, that's the message that they will take on board and that's the kind of outcomes that we will see. It plays out in a number of different ways. But the way that we see ourselves and others plays out in our actions and our attitudes and it affects our achievement. And so if we dispense with the idea of original sin and think in terms of original goodness, then we'll see ourselves as children of God rather than sinners. And we can begin to act accordingly. We'll be able to take responsibility for our actions and our attitude. Original goodness means that we can approach others with an attitude of trust and openness rather than fear and suspicion. And I think also, and again, Bregman is very good on this, there are potential implications too for how we organise society, how we run our schools and our businesses and our homes even. I think it has a massive potential to have a massive impact on every area of life. And because it's so deep, the alternative view, this idea of original sin in one way or another is so deeply embedded in our culture, then it's not a straightforward thing to kind of undo some of that. But I do think it matters intensely, and that's why I think this series is really important, that we find a way of thinking through all of this. So I just want to finish by, uh, this is a quote from the back of the Daniel Schroyer book, Original Blessing, which I think kind of sums it up. Uh, original sin is bad for people, and it isn't in the Bible. Time to get rid of it. So I think that's pretty much it. Time to embrace the reality of original goodness and original blessing. Okay, let's just take a moment just to reflect. It's just, there's a lot of stuff maybe in there, and as Joe said, maybe some of that's a bit, you're kind of thinking, I'm not quite sure what to make of all of this, and whether this is okay to kind of embrace some of these ideas. So let's just take a moment to reflect.
we reject the notion of original sin, we don't pretend that everything is fine. So let's begin by acknowledging that. Loving God, gladly we live and move and have our being in you. And yet always in the midst of this creation glory, we see sin's shadow and feel death's darkness. Around us in the earth, sea and sky, the abuse of matter. Beside us in the broken and the hungry and the poor, the betrayal of one another. And often deep within us a striving against your spirit. O Trinity of love, forgive us that we may forgive one another. Heal us that we may be people of healing. And renew us that we also may be makers of peace. Let's take a moment to reflect on how we see ourselves. Do we see a fundamental goodness? Do we see ourselves as somehow fundamentally flawed? Perhaps even under condemnation? How do we see those around us, friends and family, neighbours and colleagues, those we're drawn to and those we find it hard to like? think too about the places where we live out our lives, home, school or college, workplaces, community groups that we're part of. What is the culture in those places? What is it, what is it like to be there? Loving God, Father and Mother to us all, help us to see ourselves as you see us, to know that you're always with us and for us. And in seeing ourselves more truly, may we find and nurture and pursue the goodness which is in us from birth. Help us to be generous and kind and hopeful in our assessment of others. And in seeing others as you see them, may we become less fearful and suspicious, more open and trusting. And in those places and contexts where we live out our lives, help us to see how we might change cultures for good. May we, with humility and grace, be agents of change in the world that you love. Amen.
You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.